Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today, we're going to be interviewing Christy T. How are you doing today, Christy? Very well. Thank you. You're doing well. It's good to hear. Good to hear. So as usual, let's dive in and start telling us a little bit about yourself. Maybe we could start with you uh, when you were young. Okay. So um, I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. Um, I was adopted as an infant. Um, and I, I don't know anything about my birth parents, um, except for my mom was really young, um, like 14, and decided to place me for adoption. And I was adopted into a, a very loving home. Um, my, my parents are, um, you know, they're very, you know, um, they're very just upstanding folks. They're just good salt of the earth people. And uh, if you don't mind me asking, at what age did you find out that you were adopted? <laughs> I don't remember not knowing. Um, so you've known remember. for a long time. Yes. It I never think. was like, uh, now we're going to tell you that you're adopted. I, I don't have a recollection of not understanding that I was adopted. And the way that they put it was like, you were, we chose you and the rest of my siblings just happened. <laughs> and uh, so I always had a special relationship uh, with my dad and also with my mom, but my, my dad and I have always been pretty close. So is there anything that you look back and um, remember that might have, because uh, so what happens is a lot of people look back and they have stuff that they remember that actually led into their addiction. Do you think being adopted had anything to do with that? You know, now being, um, being an adult, I'm, I'm 40 years old and looking back, I can see that there was, you know, um, what therapists would call the, the abandonment wound. And, uh, I can see that that may have played a part. Um, and that, you know, genetic predisposition may also have played a part, but not knowing it's, it's very hard to say. Um, but that's kind of what it looks like. I don't remember feeling separate, but I remember feeling different. Um, like, like I was, I was looking in on a different family's life growing up almost, although it never felt that way. It was never conveyed to me. It was just kind of something that was, that was inside that, I don't do things like these other people do. And I don't, you know, have the drives that my siblings do. I'm the oldest of four. Gotcha. So that's good. They made you feel included. How is it at school? I know kids could be cruel. <clears throat> so at, at school, you know, I, I always had a lot of friends. Um, I was generally like always kind of a class clown and you know, put myself out there for like, you know, discipline at school just by kind of doing eccentric and, um, you know, antics that that would seem risky uh, and concerning to adults, I think. So when was the first time you were ever exposed to drugs or alcohol or anything like that? So my family were always, you know, uh, moderate drinkers. And uh, I don't remember, you know, alcohol wasn't my 
primary substance at first. Um, I initially started smoking weed when I was about 12 and that developed into hallucinogenic use like shortly thereafter. Um, That's followed really by, young. 12 years yeah. old is really young. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. It was, I think, you know, my first exposure was like, um, you know, behind the school in the afternoon with, you know, a, a group of friends that I had known for a while and then some that I hadn't, um, and there might've been older kids involved. I don't really remember, but, um, there was nothing in my head that said, you should not do this. There was nothing in my head that said that, uh, you know, this is wrong or you should beware. Um, it, I was, I was always kind of all gas, no break. And that seemed to, um, you know, smoking marijuana or getting high, um, seemed to fit kind of my, where I found my values at that time. I, I, uh, was born and raised in Seattle. It was the grunge movement. Um, and drugs just seemed to kind of fit the culture that I was migrating into. Grunge. Haven't heard that word in a while. Looking back at it. We actually, you know what? I was talking about Kurt Cobain the other day, the 27 Club, which ties yeah. into drugs and addiction because, I mean, before he killed himself, he did shoot himself up with a lethal dose of Valium and heroin and then he shot himself, supposedly. Yeah, yeah I've heard of, that. Yeah, Jim Morrison died of alcoholism. Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Brian Jones, the founder of the Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah. And a few others, I... I think Amy Winehouse too. Amy Winehouse. Uh, there's a ton. There's a lot of yeah. musicians that we haven't heard about, but you know, some musicians know the old blues guys, things like that, that they yeah. also died at 27. Yeah. Um, but it goes to show you drugs don't choose. They don't discriminate. They can, it, whether you're a rock star millionaire or just a regular Joe on the street, it affects it's us the all truth. the same. It's the same thing. We yes. all go through the same shit. I saw a picture not to go on about it, of Kurt Cobain and he just looked like a junkie. This kid was taking, it was a picture of him with a kid that the kid must have taken. And Kurt Cobain had all the red blotches on his face. He just looked like a normal junkie. Yeah, very true. And that was kind of that culture. Um, you know, Lane Staley from Allison Chains, you know, was all, they were from Seattle as well. He died. Um, and I, I think he was 27 as well, but he, I, I mean, that culture was appealing to me and a lot of other kids my age, and we just kind of sunk deep into it. My earliest memories were going to, you know, free shows in Seattle, like taking a bus to go see free music shows um, in the afternoons on Friday nights and drugs were all a part of that. And it, there wasn't anything in, I thought that it was kind of a way to express creativity and freedom of speech and, and kind of get to like a higher percent, a higher perception level. Um, I'd bought into this, you know, this lie basically that by using drugs and alcohol, I could kind of reach a different enlightenment um, and connection with other people and connection with music. Yeah. No, that's a big thing. A lot of people think that they're using drugs for a good purpose. Yeah. A lot of us, it starts off good. And then a lot of us, it ends extremely bad. 
and that's the truth. It started off with, you know, a bunch of friends, um, you know, I wouldn't even say it was social. It was like almost spiritual the way that, you know, we were young and connecting and, you know, um, you know, creating like art and all sorts of other things and merging together. Like it definitely seemed like a connection booster. Um, and in the end it, it cost me everything. Yeah. I noticed that a lot of people bond over drugs. Like I yeah. think I'm friends with a lot of people I probably would not have been friends with had I not been on drugs, you know, it's the truth. Yeah. There were certain people who were known to get Coke. So I'd hang out with them. Certain people were known to get painkillers. I'd hang out with them. Um, but most of my friendships were based on drugs. Some one way or another. Yeah. It's, it's definitely the truth. So at what age did you do your first, whatever, whatever it was, was it a hit of weed or a drink? What was like the first time ever? That would be like 12 years old. Who were you with? I was with a group of friends, some, a few people that I had known for, for a long time as we all went to elementary and middle school together. Um, and then I was with kind of a mixture of people who were kids at my school who were a little bit older. Um, there was a park right next to our school and um, we were staying. I think I told my parents probably that I was, you know, at, at some after school event and we went to this park and we all got high. So the first thing you ever did was smoke weed? Yeah. Weed's an interesting thing because everyone says it's a gateway drug and you often hear a lot of people starting off with it. But I don't think it's a gateway drug. I think it is actually the easiest thing for a kid to get and try first. Because yeah. kid, most kids can just go ask an older brother or sister or friend, can you get me some pot? I think if some reason, if say acid was easier to get, acid would be the uh, gateway drug technically. Because you'd have more people taking acid to start most likely if it's easier to get and it's cheaper to get. You know, what do I you think about that? I certainly agree. I, I, I work in treatment right now and marijuana, it's been legal in Washington state, um, for a while and, uh, for years now, but there's been kind of a shift between people thinking that this could be a dangerous thing and people accepting it as though it's, um, you know, fine. But I mean, what we do, I mean, there's a withdrawal factor with marijuana. There's, a tolerance factor there's um you know social factors that are that are connected with marijuana use i mean i i tell people all the time that i think that marijuana it's just another drug it's what are, what are the if you don't mind me asking the withdrawal symptoms of marijuana i've never heard of it having that so there is you know marked um increase in like insomnia and not being able to sleep well, okay. irritability, restlessness, all that stuff, you know, that when you take that substance away, it creates a void where, you know, people use marijuana to quote unquote relax or, you know, for acute anxiety symptoms. But when you take that away, those symptoms are still there. Yeah. Another thing that's real popular nowadays is CBD. What do you think of that? Because it's supposedly non-psychoactive, so it's not any type of high, but it just relaxes you. CBD is an interesting conversation and, and just a whole 
huge world that, you know, I, I only know a piece of, I got, I got clean before all of that stuff. And by the time I got clean, I wasn't getting clean off marijuana for sure, but with CBD, um, there are, there are some that don't have THC in it. There's some tinctures, creams, oils that don't have a content of THC in it. There's some that have a very high content of THC in it. Um, and so I, I guess it really depends if you, if one would want to look into all of that stuff for me as a recovering person, all of it, I stay away from, it's just not something in my repertoire of behaviors. I know for me that living an abstinence-based way of life is what I do regardless of, you know, the quantity of THC to CBD or anything like that. It's just not something that I, uh, I embark into. Gotcha. Understood. So how was life as a kid going into high school and stuff? Well, um, when I started using hallucinogenics in, in junior high and other drugs as well, my main core of friends really distanced themselves from me. They were still doing the school thing. I was, uh, you know, skipping school. I was not showing up at home. Um, I was taking off or, you know, what, I don't even think it was running away. I think it was just, you know, going missing. And, uh, I dropped out of school about 30 days into junior high or in 30 days into high school. So, um, you know, as an adult, I had only had an, an eighth grade education. Um, and I didn't really have a high school experience. My parents were really concerned about all this behavior. Uh, we started going to a church that somebody had recommend recommended. I met my husband, my, my ex-husband um, at this church and we got married when I was 16. Wow. Very young. It was very young. So were you still in high school when you got married? I, by then I had dropped out. Okay. Um, and I had obtained a, a GED uh, through like a local community college. So what were you doing once you got married? Were you staying home? Were you going to work? So we got pregnant with my first child, who's, who's now 23. Um, and he, that was, we thought, well, you know, the, the responsible thing to do would be to get married. I don't think I ever even considered age as a factor because I felt so much more mature in years. Um, but you know, now I, I realize the, the consequences that happen, you know, every, I believe everything has consequences, whether they're good or bad. Um, and that had, you know, good consequences. Um, but it also had pretty negative consequences. I became a stay at home mom immediately. And, uh, I, I managed to not use during all of my pregnancies, um, to not drink or use during all of my pregnancies. Um, but I did not have a commitment to not drinking or using for my life. And so shortly after I had each kid, I would go back to, you know, using substances the substances, you know, they, they vacillated between like the wide variety of everything that's available. So you were I able to keep, 
you were able to keep sober while you were pregnant? I did. Yeah. Um, and that was mainly for like, you know, the social factors. Um, what do you mean? Like the stigma? Yeah. I think that was a big part of it. Um, and also, you know, in the, in early marriages, I think in my experience, Mm. my partner became more of like a parent figure and that was just not really acceptable. What do you mean by it wasn't acceptable? It wouldn't have been acceptable in my home to continue to drink or use while, while being pregnant. It was just kind of, you know, an expectation that that wasn't going to happen. He was not an alcoholic or an addict at all. Um, and had little tolerance for any of those behaviors. Um, unfortunately it didn't make a difference, but probably he didn't even realize how hard it is for us to get sober and stay sober. Um, I, I believe, yeah, in the end, he, he did not want to continue committing to somebody who was in, who had these issues, uh, as a person and felt like for his safety and the kid's safety, he needed to divorce me. And that's what ultimately happened. So was it that bad when you were drinking or using, what was your, what was your, it was that bad. <laughs> it was that bad. All right. So at least you admit that. So what was your primary drug of choice when you first started? When I first started <clears throat> using, um, you know, I, I didn't really have options, but I know it was definitely marijuana. By the time that I got sober, um, I didn't really, it didn't really matter to me what the substance was at all. Um, I would use whatever was around, but the final time that I got clean, um, I had a UA that was positive for, you know, uh, methamphetamine, heroin. I was trying to do the methadone treatment thing um, Xanax as well, alcohol. So what happens when you take methadone and then use heroin? It is, well, it, it would be like amplifying that effect. Um, but the, the real boost is mixing methadone with Xanax. Um, and I was never committed to the methadone thing. It was by that time I was living on the street and it was a way Um, I would cheek methadone and then sell it and sell these cotton swabs that were soaked in the methadone that I had put in my mouth. And I would sell that for other things that I actually wanted to do. So you were homeless. Yes. Ultimately that was my path. That must've been scary. It was um, for me using methamphetamine um, had this effect where I didn't really have that fear. Like it was just what I did to cope, even though I, I knew that there were scary situations going on. It, it wasn't registering in my brain that I should probably fix this. Where did you sleep? Did you have a tent or something or, um, I was homeless in downtown Seattle. There was a a large encampment, um, underneath a, a freeway that I stayed in um but ultimately you know I I, explain an encampment you mean an encampment is uh, just a bunch of people just a bunch of homeless people some of them had tents most of the time shelter was made out of tarps and other things 
Okay. So um, but rough living. It was pretty rough. I, you know, I, I didn't require a lot of sleep during that time, just due to all the stuff that I was taking and maybe the danger aspect of just continuously trying to cope and walk around. Um, but there ultimately, you know, I, I didn't have people that I was around. I became very paranoid, um, and very much had lost my mind and, uh, you know, was, was definitely delusional and, and, uh, you know, talking to myself and was, uh, sleeping in doorway frames towards the end. What of different buildings you were able to find? Yeah. Yeah. There was always somewhere to, to hole away, you know, eight years ago where I was at. How long were you actually homeless for? Um, it varied. The The first time was close to a year. The second time was almost close to a year, too. So what happened in between the first and second time? You found safe haven with somebody or? I, I went to treatment um, after my divorce. I was not able to see my kids unless I was a clean and sober person. And I knew that like my time was running out and that if I kept living the way that I was living, I wouldn't see them and I would probably die. Um, I would have these brief moments of clarity where I was like, I should figure out how to get clean. And uh, during one of those stints, I went to treatment in Florida um, for long-term treatment. And that was successful. Um, you know, for a variety of different reasons. Um, and I stayed there for about six months. When I came back home, I, ex I tried to incorporate recovery principles into my, my life uh, in my home state, and I wasn't able to. I relapsed about a month later after coming home. Did you attempt to find a sponsor or get more involved? I did. Um, I, I did. I was trying it's not that nothing was working it was that um you know I was I was alone and didn't have much support um I was staying in a shelter and trying to incorporate a recovery way of living um in my home state was a lot different than having all of the support that I had when I was in Florida um and um, I'd had uh, kind of a long-term boyfriend at that time where, I mean, he would go to jail and I would go to treatment and then we would meet up and try to be clean, but it just, that just never worked. And um, ultimately that was my focus was trying to maintain this relationship instead of trying to work a program of recovery. So um, when I came out of treatment, he came out of jail and we attempted to go to him the meetings with no accountability and um eventually just relapsed so second time around with rehab what was different this time um during that time you know i um i'd lost i gotten kicked out of the shelter and um i was i was on the street and, you know, honestly, I think I had a brief moment of clarity where um, 
you know, I had legal issues that were pending a, a multiple DUI offender. And that was my third DUI. And I had to do what's called a deferred prosecution in, in Washington state where you're in treatment for two years um, and, you know, or monitor basically for about two years. And I had a probation officer that knew that I needed to go to treatment. Um, and I finally went to a, to a state run facility in Washington state. Um, getting there was, was horrendous. It was on the other side of the state. And it, I think it literally took any sort of mental faculty that I had, you know, possibly could scrounge up during that time to pawn a guitar from the dope man and get on a bus and go to treatment in Spokane, Washington. So actually backtracking a little bit, you said that you were thrown out of a shelter. So when was the first time you entered shelter and what, what was that life like living there? <clears throat> um, it was, I thought it was very scary. There were other women who to me were frightening to me. Um, and I would try to enter into inner city shelters and have that experience where things seemed very hostile. And so I would leave being on the street seemed like I could manage myself better on the street than I could manage what was going on in the shelter around me. What, what was, um, what do you mean by hostile? Um, like theft, violence. Um, a lot of fights. Yeah, other people's erratic behavior. You know, it was, it was definitely a lot. I mean, it, shelter housing is traumatic at some level. That sucks. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it definitely was, was scary to me as I remember it being, it could have been my own paranoia, but that was my experience with that. And somehow I had reconciled myself to being on the street and using was safer for me as an individual than it would be to go into a shelter and be around other people's erratic behaviors and not be able to cope or manage with that. And around this time, how old were you? I was 30, 31. All right, so you were a little older when you first entered a shelter. So from- I was. From the time you were very young up until then, you were consistently using? Yeah, I would say I, I was. I tried to, as people started to take notice that I might have a problem, I would try to just not use. I thought that that was possible. Um, for me, I, I did not find just saying no or putting things down. I did not find that to be an effective method of of abstinence. So, um, aside from being pregnant, there was always a period of time where my use, um, was continual with different substances along the way. So there'd be a time where alcohol seemed like it would be more socially acceptable because I got, you know, caught up using cocaine and that wasn't going to jive with the whole like married family thing but alcohol was acceptable enough. So I'd stay with that. Um, then, you know, I'd gotten into prescription pill abuse and that was um, easy to hide and easy to uh, 
deal with, I think. So that there was prescription pill abuse. What kind uh, of pills? There, um, let's see. So, I mean, any type of benzodiazepine you could think of. Um, after my, my fourth daughter was born, I had a series of like medical issues that necessitated the need for painkillers. But I realized that I could just keep getting them if I just kept lying about symptoms. So, so I did you that. have four kids, huh? I do. Four children. Yes. Um, were they with different fathers, if you don't mind me asking that? No, I was married for 13 years from the time I was 15 or 16 until the, the time I was 30. Um, I was served divorce papers in my first treatment center. And uh, he was done. He he really felt like he needed to keep his family and the kids safe. The words methamphetamine and heroin were frightening to him. Um, you know, he thought that I was just struggling with alcohol. Um, but you know, I was I was unable to be honest about anything. I so, was going to say this might be a tough question, but yeah, do do you think he should have left? Was he right for what he did, or yeah, did he I, was he wrong? I no, he wasn't wrong. I think uh, I think that I was probably given a lot of opportunity to not um, use substances during 13 years of marriage. And I think that at, at some point, um, you know, what was going on was I was, you know, leaving at nighttime and not coming back until, you know, the early morning when he went to work and then lying about what was going on. And the car broke down. Oh, I just slept in a parking ride. Like, and this was so not acceptable to him. And for the family, I think, I mean, it made him crazy when we finally had a family conjoint session in a, at a treatment facility said, you know, I, I thought I was just going crazy. Um, what was it called? You had, it was family treatment? A family conjoint session. So okay. we were, you know, and I was in inpatient treatment, but the family was invited in um, for hopes of, you know, some sort of, um, you know, acute marriage and family counseling. Um, and it also gave the family an opportunity to let their person in treatment know how they were affected. Um, and so he showed up to that, um, you know, basically on the premise that, you know, we weren't getting back together, but that it would be necessary to maintain some sort of civil relationship. How were your children, because you had four children, how were they affected by all your abuse? Um, they have, they've all been affected. I think, you know, nobody, nobody gets out alive. I mean, it, it, it just it completely decimated my family. So my, um, my oldest son, who's 23, um, they all felt abandoned by me. He, especially because we had such a strong bond, I think has, um, had a lot of work in therapy to try and get over it. He's, he's a successful person. He went to the university of Washington for four years and graduated with a bachelor's degree and, you know, has just done really well for himself but emotionally, um, I think he's still dealing with issues of trauma from when I left and then their dad having to figure out how to raise four kids while holding down his job um, and all of that. So meanwhile, just a complete severance from, from myself as their mom. Even though I was using, I was still showing up um, at you know 
at an intoxicated capacity, but I was still, you know, doing room parent issues, stuff in their, in their classrooms and being present for, you know, school nights and making sure homework got done. Um, but in the end, I, I wasn't able to keep up with any of that. Um, and so I, I do see that I have uh, a daughter who's 18 now, who was about seven, I think when I left, um, she was very much traumatized. Um, she didn't have a woman in the house and she and I have always had a really special bond. Um, my third child was about two or three. He was, uh, he's still now he's 13. He displays characteristics of kind of the lost child where, you know, he's quiet, he's complacent. He'll do what you ask, but you never really know what's going on. So that might just be 13. (laughs) It also might be an aspect of, of kind of residual effects. Um, my youngest daughter was one when I left, she's 12 now. And, uh, and she was recently, she's had, um, developmental delays ever since, uh, birth and about two years old that we had discovered. Um, and we took her to a, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome clinic. While I didn't drink during my pregnancies before I knew I was pregnant with her, um, with no intention of getting pregnant, I had an issue of extreme intoxication where I had overdosed in a hot tub and went to the ICU. And in the ICU, I found out that I was pregnant with her in the very early, early stages. Um, so we believe that she's alcohol affected. That's what we've been told. And she has developmental delays, whether they're related to alcohol use or not is, is questionable. Um, but there is, there are delays that she experiences developmentally there. Did your children ever come to you with specific ways that, like, you know, like kind of like, you know, when you have an intervention, people are allowed to speak their mind, like you said earlier, did your children ever tell you anything specific? Like, you know, mom, you missed this, or you didn't do that. Or maybe you, I don't know if you had any time for you were abusive. My kids know that um, what happened after our divorce and they know my, my story of recovery, um, they've all been to speaking events where I've spoke directly to this. They've never told me you missed, they told me how it's affected them in areas like, um, you know, I, I'd really, you know, wish that somebody had been here for that and you weren't there. Um, but they also know and have a, a deep understanding of what addiction and recovery is. And for the most part, what the feedback that I get from them is how grateful and how happy they are that I'm a recovering person and that I'm involved in doing the things that I do today. So you got some good positive feedback. Yes, I have, I have really great kids and uh, that understand the disease and how it affects the family. Do they go to any programs for themselves, like such as Al-Anon? They've been to counseling and um, they haven't been to Al-Anon or Alateen. They'd expressed interest. Um, one of them has ex- had expressed interest in doing that. Um, but ultimately, you know, now she's older and she's starting to embark on her life. 
and that hasn't really come up yet. Okay. So what is life like nowadays? Um, well, today um, I've been um, a person in recovery for almost eight years. Um, I had managed recovery housing in my area um, ever since I had gotten clean and that opportunity just kind of fell into my lap and uh, really helped kind of bolster my sobriety throughout the years. Um, and I'm, I got remarried in 2020 during the pandemic. Um, my whole family was a part of that event. My, my children are in love with their stepdad um, and have always been accepting of that relationship. Um, we recently, uh, you know, bought a home and, uh, we both have stable jobs and, um, I work in treatment. I realized that, you know, the only thing I'd been successful at when I was about two years clean, I realized this, that the only thing I'd been successful at was, you know, raising my kids and, um, you know, getting sober. And if I could give back, uh, in that capacity at a larger scale, um, I would want to do that. And I went to school and I became, uh, substance use disorder provider in Washington state. I've been a counselor for six years going on seven. And, um, I recently took a new position as, uh, in treatment management as a treatment supervisor. So what are you doing? Are you actually at a rehab facility? Yeah, I've been working in treatment at different, uh, re rehab facilities, ranging from methadone treat mat treatment to, um, your standard issue outpatient treatment. And uh, now I work at an inpatient facility. Pretty cool. What is your uh, job like there? What kind of stuff do you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis? So that job entails uh, supervising other counselors who want to become counselors um, and are kind of new in their career status. And, um, you know, also it's kind of, you know, putting fires out and solving larger problems that happen on site. So pretty cool. Yeah. So what is something that you've learned along the way that you think you could pass on some words of encouragement, words of advice to the people who uh, are listening right now and watching? I know that, um, you know, and it's so cliche, but if, if someone like me could get clean, I believe that anybody could. Um, I, I have a, a, a strong, strong value that it doesn't matter what you're coming out of, that you can come into something good that's only provided by uh, utilizing a program of recovery. Um, I don't believe that people who take medications to support recovery behaviors are not people who are in treatment. I believe that they too um, can also get clean and sober by utilizing principles of recovery. Understood. And what is your routine for you? Is there anything specific you do to keep sober? I know you yes. got sober. How do you keep sober? Um, so, you know, I, I have a home group that I've had ever since I've gotten clean. I have a sponsor that I work steps with. She has a sponsor who has a sponsor. 
Um, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, proprietary to either, you know, Narcotics Anonymous or um, Cocaine Anonymous or AA. I believe that it's all, it all encompasses the values that we try to create when we're trying to become recovering people. Um, so I go to meetings um, and I provide service at the meetings that I go to. And um, it's a, it's a commitment. I attend conventions. My husband and I met in our home group and um, our lives, we speak a lot of recovery uh, in our lives on a daily basis. Well, that's good. Yeah. Your partner is also in recovery. Yes. Yeah. I, I think so. for me, that would, it, that would be the only way. <laughs> the only way. I guess it's important. You want to feel understood. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of, I mean, it's, it's the number one thing in my life that keeps my life going is being a person in recovery. So if I had someone that I was with who didn't have that, I don't know how much compatibility we would really see together. Gotcha. So that's great. So what are your plans for the future? Anything that you got in mind, anything that you, uh, goals you've set for yourself besides staying sober? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, I have, um, a lot of goals. I, um, you know, and about five years, our goal is to kind of move out of Washington state, um, in more of a metropolitan and move out to Montana. Uh, we spend a lot of time out there and, um, getting to know the land and really kind of, um, vibrating with, uh, what's going on out there. Um, I, I do see, you know, continuing to work in treatment, um, and also, you know, going back to school to attain, you know, higher learning and, and stuff like that. That's great. It sounds like you're on the right track. Yeah, there's, uh, the future is very, very bright for, for me. <laughs> okay. It's good to have, uh, goals and plans and to be living life happily and sober. I do think so too. All right, Christy, I want to thank you for coming on today. How do you feel? I feel great, Jim. Thanks so much for having me for the invite. Um, you know, for listeners, you've got just a really cool thing going on here. Thank you very much. And for our listeners that might be listening or watching, if you're on YouTube, go below to our logo and click subscribe. Also give us a like. You can also join our Facebook group. One thing I suggest is checking out a Zoom meeting, which you can go right under the events tab. You can also give us a like and a review. Um, and that's all I have for today. So until next time.